Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Indonesia has made impressive democratic gains since the fall of the authoritarian Suharto regime in 1998 and has long been praised as a model Muslim democracy. But in recent years, the quality of Indonesian democracy has notably declined as the country continues to struggle with challenges to its democratic institutions and values with systematic corruption and discrimination and also violence against minority groups. Here to discuss the decline in Indonesian democracy is Dr. Ken Setawan, lecturer in Indonesian and Asian studies at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Thank you for joining me today, Ken. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. And also uh, returning to the podcast is Associate Professor Dirk Thompson, Head of the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Dirk. Thanks. Good to be here again. Together, they have co-authored the book Politics in Contemporary Indonesia, Institutional Change, Policy Challenges and Democratic Decline, published by Rutledge in 2022. So if we can start with, uh, you write that since 2010, there has been a peak in effectiveness in Indonesia's democracy. Why do you argue this and what are some of the dominant political narratives you are now witnessing in Indonesian politics? Yeah, most Indonesian analysts who've been following the trajectory of Indonesian democracy noticed that during the presidency of Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono from 2004 and 2014, there haven't been any really new democratic reforms since then anymore. Yudhoyono oversaw a period of sort of democratic stability and um, things were going fairly smoothly. But there was also a lack of impetus to drive this further and to address some of the more deeply entrenched challenges, such as corruption, as you mentioned in your introduction, but also some of the dysfunctionality of the party system, how the parties get their money, for example. Mm. And by the middle of Yudhoyono's term, most people would probably have argued that Indonesia's democracy looked quite solid but was also a bit stagnating and was lacking any new impetus to drive these reforms further. For the remainder then of Yudhoyono's term, that remained like this. There was a general sense that, yes, Indonesian politics is stable, but it's also a bit stagnant. And then when current President Joko Widodo won power in 2014, there was a lot of hope, I think, at least amongst Western observers and certainly segments of Indonesian activists, progressive thinkers, that Jokowi would sort of revitalize Indonesia's democracy. He certainly sort of projected that image in his campaign back then. And he allied himself to some of these pro-democracy groups and activists and NGOs um, during the campaign. But what we've seen since he became president was that he has largely succumbed to the more structural forces within Indonesian politics. He hasn't really tackled any of the underlying faults. He has allied himself rather than with democracy activists more with the big business elite. Um, it's often described just simply as the oligarchy, people with big money who control the political parties. And so many of the problems that were left unaddressed by Yudi Yono were not addressed by Jokowi. And what then happened in addition was that some new trends occurred that probably no one really foreshadowed at the time, that Jokowi was resorting to all sorts of illiberal measures to consolidate his power. Um, he would be very sensitive to criticism and go after his critics. And yeah, when Indonesian society became a bit more polarized um, around 2016 and 2017, um, between 
more proponents of a stronger role for Islam in public life and those who oppose that. He found himself on the back foot. He's a proponent of the pluralist tradition. The Islamists were gaining strength. Society became yeah, a lot more divided. And his response to that was not to seek reconciliatory measures between them, but rather to push really hard for Indonesia's pluralist heritage, go after his Islamist critics. And that you know, led to a lot of divisions within society. So overall, yeah, in many ways, the quality of democracy has declined mm. um, during the Jokowi years. And this narrative, to go back to part of your question, this narrative of democratic reform, democratic ideals that was there for the first 10, 15 years after 1998 has been replaced by this contest between a staunch nationalism that has to defend pluralism at all costs, even if it means suppressing alternative versions, and the Islamist groups on the other side. Mm -hmm. That's a, a stark difference from previous podcast conversations <laughs> where we've had where you've, you've spoken of the real hope that came with Jokowi's election. Uh, mm. But it sounds like if there, if there hasn't been reform, if there hasn't been positive reform, there's been chipping away at democratic ideals, if anything. And I can, I can see a lot of nodding from you, Ken. So did you want to weigh in at all? <laughs> well, I think that's absolutely correct that we've seen this chipping away of democratic gains. But I think it's also really important to point out that Indonesia prior to this was never a perfect democracy. Mm. Um, Indonesia's democratic trajectory from 1998 has always been flawed. And I think if we look back at 1998 and the situation that Indonesia was in, it actually has transitioned to more democratic forms of governance reasonably well. But there was like another side of that coin and there were trade-offs, which means that Indonesia never consolidated into a liberal democracy to begin with. Mm. So I think that is actually also important to remember. Those problems have always been there, but they have really intensified. Okay, so one persistent challenge to Indonesia's democracy is corruption. How widespread is the problem of corruption in Indonesia's politics? Corruption is pretty entrenched in Indonesia, and it ranges from like smaller or petty corruption where people pay a bribe to just speed up services to really bigger payments to secure business licenses or to secure favorable judicial outcomes. So mm. it is a huge problem. One of the main bodies in Indonesia that is charged with uh, battling uh, corruption is the Corruption Eradication Commission, or KPK, which together with its associated anti-corruption courts, indeed, has a, a huge mandate uh, to tackle corruption. And particularly, the KPK in its early years really gained a lot of uh, popular support. However, because it was so popular, it also automatically attracted a lot of criticism and backlash and uh, political elites as well as business figures, for instance, have threatened to limit the, the mandate of, of the Corruption Eradication Commission. So in 2019, we did see that coming into effect through mm. amendments to the law that establishes the Corruption Eradication Commission and sets out it, its mandate. And some of these amendments included a limitation of its investigatory powers. So that really is expected to have a big uh, impact on the independent operation of this watchdog. Yeah, yeah, very much limits the effectiveness it's had on there. Can you, you take me through, in, in 2020, there was a big cabinet reshuffle, which was quite notable for some of the changes that it made. And uh, there were allegations that this was in response to corruption, but also seemed to make the problem worse, if I can put it that way. It was partly in response to corruption because Jokowi 
suddenly had two cabinet members who were charged by the anti-corruption commission and he had to get rid of them mm. uh, which he did yeah it was um, particularly telling about the problem of corruption in indonesia that one of the two ministers was the minister of social affairs who was in charge of managing the response to covid 19 so members of indonesia's elite have really no shame from where they embezzle the money um, that can be money that they take from you know religious pilgrims to saudi arabia or it can be money that's designated as relief for you know the pandemic mm. so this was really embarrassing for Jacobi and so he had to obviously get rid of those two ministers but he also then took this as an opportunity for a broader reshuffle which then tied into dynamics that feed more into the broader I don't know, patterns of Indonesian democracy. He had to reward certain political groups that had supported him in the past, which felt that they weren't properly rewarded um, when the cabinet was formed first in 2019 after Jokowi's re-election. So the reshuffle became a bit of a mix of a response to corruption cases, to public dissatisfaction with how the cabinet was performing, but also to pressure that Jokowi felt from his coalition partners to reward certain people. Mm-hmm. And how is that tied in with the, the pandemic response? Has that helped, I imagine, hampered it more than anything? Yeah, so definitely Indonesia's pandemic response, as I think everyone would know, has been not very effective. And... Certainly, you know, parts of these indicators of democratic decline definitely played a role in that. So Dirk just earlier mentioned, for instance, polarization. So how do we then see that play out in the pandemic response? Maybe if we first look at how people kind of looked at the government's response or how they evaluated it. So people who were supportive of Jokowi we were more likely to agree with the government's pandemic response, whereas people that voted uh, against him were more negative. Mm. At the level then of political elites, that polarization played out in very different responses to the pandemic. So whereas Jokowi really favored an approach that would conserve the economy, so shying away from lockdowns, the governor of Jakarta, Anis Baswedan, really promoted strict lockdowns. So what happened was that you had no consistency in policies or responses to the pandemic. Mm. And we also know from other countries that a concerted and bipartisan effort is really important to formulate an effective pandemic response. Another indicator of this democratic decline is increased religious conservatism, Mm. right? Um, And then what happened was that the Indonesian government did not want to have a ban on Mudik, which is the annual holiday after the end of the fasting month when people return to their villages, so an annual migration, so to speak. So the government didn't want to put a ban on this. And they really wanted the Islamic mass organizations and UM Muhammadiyah to do so. But then NOM Muhammadiyah also did not want to do that. So mm. that really creates issues in the pandemic response where political elites don't want to make a decision that might invite backlash from the Muslim community. Yeah, yeah. How influential are the, the Muslim community in the politics of Indonesia? Yeah, definitely. Islam is an important political factor. About 90% of Indonesia's population are Muslims and many of them see Islam not just you know, an issue of personal piety, but also as a matter of public life. And they want Islam to influence the way politics is you know, structured, the way it 
promotes certain values that may not always be directly in line with democratic values. So we've seen an increase in piety over uh, quite a long time now in Indonesia, probably since the 1990s. But it really came to a peak in 2016-2017 when the most conservative end of political Islam rallied around an issue that really galvanized them, which was at that time the election to the governor of Jakarta, where the then governor was an ethnic Chinese Christian mm. who personified for them everything that was wrong about Indonesian politics. And so after he made some remarks that offended many Muslims, they agitated for his removal. And they were successful with that. He ended up in jail for two years um, for alleged blasphemy. And that was in many ways the high point of this Islamist activism. It lingered on until the 2019 election when it was really, to a large extent, a contest between the forces that rallied behind the Islamist groups and those that rallied behind Jokowi, who represented the sort of pluralists. Since then, the sometimes quite aggressive measures that Jokowi has taken against the Islamist groups have had an effect. The Islamist camp has fragmented. Some of the most prominent leaders have been arrested. Uh, put in jail. And Jokowi has at the same time made a concerted effort of trying to appease the morally conservative yet politically a bit more open part of the community. So it can get quite complicated. Yeah, he provided quite a lot of opportunities for these groups. There's one in particular, the Nadlatulu Lama. It's the largest Islamic mass organization in Indonesia with somewhere around 50, 60 million supporters perhaps. He brought them firmly into the government camp and um, because they themselves saw the more politically aggressive Islamists as a threat to their interests. So the double-pronged strategy pursuing the politically quite radical fringe with all sorts of illiberal measures, as I said, fabricating charges against them to take their leaders out, introducing screening tests for bureaucrats or members of the Corruption Eradication Commission had to pledge their loyalty to the pluralist ideology of Panchasila. So if you were sympathetic to a more conservative version of Islam, you were suddenly denied opportunities that previously may not have been denied. Mm. Um, so yeah, the influence of political Islam is immense. And it's it's basically the only ideological dividing line that you have in Indonesian politics, if you wish. There's no such thing as left or right. The left has long been exterminated from Indonesian politics and really only exists on the very fringes. But religion remains very strong. Everyone in Indonesia has views on that, how much Islam should influence public life. And that's been an ongoing battle, if you wish. And at the moment, Jokowi seems to be quite effective with the strategies of marginalizing the extremist fringe again. So related to this, I guess, is uh, the conservative Islamist groups and their influence in gender and sexuality and the challenges to the rights of these groups. So while Indonesia has made noteworthy progress towards some gender equality in its time as a democracy, it ranks rather poorly when considering gender disparities in quite a lot of things, uh, education, reproductive health, economic and political participation, workforce participation, and a large gender pay gap. Why do these problems persist in Indonesia? Maybe to start off with a slight correction, if we look at, actually when we look at gender equality in schools, access of boys and girls to education is quite similar. The problem is, is that many schools reinforce gender stereotypes. There's still a challenge that 
girls are of much higher risk to drop out of school. Mm. When girls drop out of school early, it has automatically an impact on their position in the workforce. So this is how we explain that large gender pay gap that you mentioned. On average, Indonesian women are paid almost 25% less than men. It also has an impact on the representation of women in the informal sector, mm. whereby women are hugely overrepresented. So that all kind of all very closely linked to one another. If you then look at the political participation of women, we've actually seen a huge improvement of women's political participation since 1998. In the 2019 elections, 40% of candidates were women and 20% got elected. However, it's much harder for women to get elected mm. than for men. Is, so, is there a quota now? There is a quota whereby 30% of the candidates of political parties must be women. Right. However. However, yeah. women tend to be lower ranked on candidate lists than men. And it also is remains harder for women to get elected and whether women are elected depends on things such as whether they're affiliated with powerful political families or other political actors. And then actually, you spoke about reproductive health. The main issue that is often singled out by observers is Indonesia's uh, high maternal mortality rate, which remains high compared to its regional neighbours. Mm. And especially when we look at you know the more rural areas in Indonesia, as well as areas outside Java, Bali, Sumatra, but even there, you know, there's still a lack of access to quality healthcare. Mm. And that really plays into that factor. And then we have, you know, issues such as early marriage, polygamy, gender-based violence. So Indonesia has made really good steps forward, but at the same time, many of these issues remain. And I believe your question was how we can explain that. Mm. And as you said before, it definitely has something to do with a hard push by conservative Islamist groups. But I think it's a little bit more complex than that. For instance, if we look at the discrimination of sexual minorities and particularly LGBT people, that's not just coming from conservative Islamist groups. It can also be explained by social conservatism, as well as very deeply entrenched gender norms that are very difficult to undo. And I think a really important development that we've recently seen, uh, so earlier in the year, the law on sexual violence was passed. And this is really a landmark law in that it establishes very basic human rights for women. It criminalizes nine different acts of sexual violence that are not covered in existing legislation. And that is actually the outcome of well over a decade of very hard work by Indonesian human rights and women's rights activists. And there was actually really a strong conservative push against that law so that mm. it eventually was passed by parliament is, I think, a very important step forward, especially in a time where we see globally really a backlash on the rights of women. If I can bring it back to a couple of trends in democracy, I was wondering if the modest, the perceived modest origin story of Jokowi has influenced how uh, local political races run in democracy and if those are seen as a bit of a training ground for people who aspire to higher office now. I was wondering if they're getting a bit more cutthroat, if there's more at stake in those kind of races. Yeah, for sure. Jokowi in many ways would have been, or his pathway to power in many ways um, has become 
a model is perhaps the wrong word, but it is clear now that a good track record as a provincial governor position or mayoral position in one of the big cities can set you up for higher office. And that wasn't possible before the decentralization laws were passed in the um, late 90s, early 2000s. And it took a long time for local politicians to really seize these opportunities. But certainly we have now seen that even politicians who were active at the national level before go back to the subnational level in order to you know take a different pathway basically really? so if we, we mentioned um, Jakarta governor Anis Baswedan before mm. he used to be a cabinet minister at the national level wow but is now the governor of Jakarta and that is a platform from where he is most likely to launch his next bid for the presidency yeah the other really strong candidate for the next presidential election at the moment. I mean, the, the election is still two years away, but the first trends are emerging because Jokowi is not eligible to run again. The front runner at the moment in the polls is the governor of the central Java province. So again, it's not someone from the current national elite, but again, Ganja Pranovo, the governor, he also did hold office at the national level before. Mm. So yes, going through that sort of detour, so to speak, of building up a strong support base, um, building up a track record of efficient governance at the subnational level can certainly be a good pattern. And Jokowi was the first to basically show how that works. Mm. It could be a, a bit of an indication that it's too easy to get burnt at cabinet level as well. <laughs> There's uh, too much going on there that can go wrong, I guess. Yeah, certainly can. I suppose... It's a bit early to speculate about 2024 now, even though a lot of people in Indonesia do it all the time. But it's quite likely that the candidates that will eventually be um, running for the presidency, on the one hand, you will have people from the subnational level. And on the other hand, you will not necessarily have people who are currently in cabinet, even though there might be, Prabowo, who knows. But it might also be people who are affiliated to powerful elites who might even be relatives of powerful elites, daughters or sons of uh, former politicians. So it's quite possible that we will have constellations where they team up, mm. that you will have um, one from the established national elite together with someone who is currently in power at the subnational level, but who definitely has the networks and the connections to the national level as well. So what is the public sentiment towards democracy in Indonesia then? Well, Indonesians love their elections. Turnout at elections is generally always very high. And I think to some extent, it's the most obvious characteristic of democracy for many Indonesians that they, you know, having gone through decades of authoritarian rule before where every election result um, was predetermined, the openness and competitiveness of electoral competition now is very much treasured in Indonesia. Mm. Beyond that, though, there's a, also a very widespread instrumentalist view of democracy, that democracy is expected to deliver prosperity and economic development. And as long as that's a given, and that was a given until the pandemic hit, satisfaction with democracy was high. It's still high, but it has dipped a little bit during the pandemic, and that's widely been interpreted as the failure of a democratically elected government to deliver quick answers to maintain economic prosperity and tackle the pandemic at the same time. I think every democracy is having that problem, though. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm not saying it's unique to Indonesia. Mm. Um, we, we could see that in public opinion, that yeah, the sentiment shifted somewhat. 
I think we also need to distinguish between the procedural aspects of democracy and the liberal values that people often in the West associate with democracy. So it's quite a distinction between those two. The procedural aspects are very much valued in Indonesia, but certain attributes such as, for example, gender equality would be yeah, far further down the list. Mm, mm. And I think also just what Dirk said about that dip in support for democracy was very much tied with you know, social welfare, with uh, economic performance and just everyday life. It didn't have so much to do with, for instance, growing illiberalism during the pandemic, where you know people that were criticizing the pandemic response of the government were arrested, where we've seen a real crackdown on freedom of expression, freedom of association. I think that's also really important to remember that, that yes, absolutely, Indonesians are uh, very supportive of a democracy when it concerns free and fair elections. Um, but when it comes to more those individual rights and freedoms, then uh, we also know from other survey data that support for that is less. Okay, my final question is for both of you then. I was just wondering, when you came out of writing this book, are you more positive about the democracy in Indonesia? Do you think that it's going to improve or are you concerned for it? Well, writing the book took quite a while, (laughs) a long time, longer than we thought, of course. And during the process... I was not very positive, I have to say. I was quite optimistic because the process when we were writing the book was really the years when things were deteriorating Mm. quite consistently. Since we finished the manuscript, things haven't really deteriorated further. And you might say that that's a good sign. It seems as if it's now sort of plateauing on a lower level in terms of democratic quality than it was five or six years ago. There have been some positive signs. Ken was mentioning the sexual violence bill. The Corruption Eradication Commission was significantly weakened through legislative change in 2019, yet it's still active. It hasn't disappeared, and some people you know, thought that was a death knell. It's weakened now, but it's still there. So there's, it seems as if democracy is quite resilient in Indonesia. Democracy activists, progressive forces are doing their best to sort of, you know, stand up against the trends. And it seems that or maybe over the last year or so, they've had a few noteworthy successes, which makes me a bit more hopeful than I was during the writing of the book. Mm. <laughs> Some people say a lot will depend on what the next election will bring, who will be the next president. But I'm not so sure if it's really related to that Because whoever will be the next president, I don't think there will be a very radical shift in how things are going. I think it's more about the broader long-term trends. And it's good that this trend from stagnation to deterioration has now been arrested. It's now stagnating again. And the question is whether on that basis now perhaps yeah, some more rights can be reinforced a bit more forcefully again once the polarization subsides a bit. There are some signs that it is subsiding. The Islamists are quite weakened. So maybe, yeah, things may be looking up Okay, a little bit. I don't know if you share that view, Ken. I do share that view. And I think also if we look at Indonesia in a regional context, mm. um, I think it's fair to say that Southeast Asia in general doesn't really seem to provide a fertile ground for democracy. If we even look at more you know, recent developments, the resurgence of the military in Myanmar, um, which has really halted democratic progress in that country, 
just a few months ago, the election of Bongbong Marcos in the Philippines. Compared to that, Indonesia is actually doing quite well. As we were writing this book, of course, you know, you see a lot of these big challenges that are not very easily resolved. There are things to be very worried about. I think Indonesia's democracy remains very vulnerable for further backsliding. Mm. But at the same time, there are glimmers of hope. And it's also really important to look at that because, for instance, that law on sexual violence that came into being because of the very hard lobbying of civil society groups. And as we know, civil society can be a tremendous force for um, democratic reform. So I think that that is very, very important. Ken, Dirk, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or every friendly neighborhood podcatching platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.